0: State Impact Pennsylvania and NJ Spotlight present the Delaware River Watershed Protecting Today and Tomorrow. This podcast was recorded September 15, 2017, at Camden County College in Camden, New Jersey. In this program, the welcoming remarks and a keynote address by Carol Collier, Senior Advisor for Watershed Management and Policy, the Academy of Natural Sciences, Drexel University. Introducing the program is John Musoni. Assistant Vice President of News at WHYY Radio in Philadelphia.
1: My name is John Musoni. I'm the Assistant Vice President for News Operations at WHYY. And I want to welcome you to this uh, this forum, the Delaware River Watershed, protecting today and tomorrow. Um, we are doing this in collaboration with uh, NJ Spotlight. And I just uh, wanted to say a few words about the collaboration and about WHYY's uh environmental, and water reporting. Uh, to do all that, we certainly want to thank the William Penn Foundation for their support on this project. They've been uh, very generous in their uh, in their ability to allow us to continue this type of reporting, and, and we certainly appreciate that. The collaboration with NJ Spotlight is really important because collaboration in journalism means that both parties become stronger because they can share in the in the work of the other. And we've certainly found that in a partnership with, with NJ Spotlight and we are so happy to be with uh, them at this event today. Um, the WHY component of, uh, of this collaboration involves uh, state impact uh, that is headed up by Susan Phillips who has won many awards for her reporting in environmental and energy and, and water reporting. Catalina Jaramero is also a member of the team, and uh, we certainly look forward to many more contributions from her as well. Uh, you can look for Susan's reporting uh, on the State Impact website as part of WHYY.org. And also on our newsworks.org site we have a specific uh, site, uh, that we title Watershed, which has a lot of our reporting for the tri-state area, in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and in Delaware. Um, again, uh, we welcome you to this event. Uh, if I can make one plug for WHYY, uh, we have a big event coming up on television, coming up on Sunday night, uh, the Vietnam War. It's a, it's a series, uh, 10 parts, by uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novak. I'm sure it's... Uh, with all Ken Burns material, it's going to be one of those events that you'll be talking about Monday morning and all through the week. And uh, you know, again, that type of uh, programming couldn't be uh, supported without members like you all, uh, who look at times like like this that are a little bit uncertain and uh, and know that public media and collaborations with groups like NJ Spotlight help strengthen that. That dialogue that we are going to engage in this morning. So again, thank you for coming, and I want to present John Mooney. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm John
2: Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, and um, really thrilled to be here. We have held, in our seven years, something like 35, 40 such roundtable events. This is, I think, the first time we've collaborated with another uh, news entity in, in providing it. And, and as John mentioned. Working together, you know, in this new world of media, uh, these kinds of collaborations are really critical in uh, bringing a critical mass to these issues. So, um, John uh, rightfully thanked our our sponsors, uh, largely William Penn Foundation, who making this possible. I also want to add the Coalition for Delaware River Watershed was also. Uh, a, Contributing sponsor to this, and it's very important for to have that kind of support. These things don't happen without um, folks who can help us uh, defray some of the costs and and um, and nail down these venues. I also want to thank uh, Camden Community College for this great space. It's um, a little tricky to get a, getting here from us up north, um, but I'm I'm glad we made it, and I'm really looking forward to it. I wanted to go through some of the uh, housekeeping and logistics. Uh, the way we hold these events is. Um, in the panel discussions my our reporter Tom Johnson will be moderating uh, and posing the questions but we also want to hear from you all and we ask that you submit questions with index on index cards and we will be walking around the two aisles uh down the two aisles and if you have a question you know raise your hand we'll we'll slip you an index card that card will get up to Tom and he'll uh weave it into the discussion as well um and it's worked very well and it allows you know, a continued flow of, of, of the conversation up here. Um, there's also uh, surveys uh, at the front desk. If you didn't pick it up already, if you could please fill that out and and leave it for us. That kind of feedback is really invaluable for us to continue to hold these events and improve upon them. Um, also, parking always. Uh, there's um, With your parking tickets, when you leave, go back to the front door of Camden Community College and they will validate it for you. Um, Without that, you will be paying. Um, there's also, I w- want to let you know, we will be covering this event as well as, as doing this um, you know, live. And, and the, we will have some stories about it as well. And then we will also be posting a podcast of it. So if, if uh, your colleagues are not here and, and still want to um, catch what was discussed, those podcasts will be made available on our sites. Um, I think that's about it. I think it's it's time to get going. I want to introduce our our keynote speaker, Karen Collier. Uh, I asked Tom Johnson. I said, "What should I say about Karen Collier?" Um, and besides her, then the bios there, senior advisor for the Academy of Natural Sciences at Drexel. But he said, you know, quickly said, if there's anybody who knows everything about the Delaware River watershed, it is Carol Collier. Uh, made it her life's work in some ways, and, and really uh, an important voice and, and a great resource for all of us to learn more. So, uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Carol Collier.
3: Good morning, everyone. So, when I'm asked to talk about the Delaware River, hey, I say yes, because it's my favorite topic. So. One of my goals this morning is to provide some background information on the river system, sort of how complex it is out there, uh, some of the issues I see as forefront, and hopefully provide a basis that the uh, panel, panelists uh, can, can build from. So, I first want to start with key issues. You know, the Delaware really is a unique, va- um, valuable, but also vulnerable resource. When you think of this megalopolis we live in between Washington, New York, et cetera, to have a free-flowing river, an undammed river, uh, in our backyard providing water to 15 million people plus, I mean, it is just something that needs to be taken care of. Um, You know, the gorilla in the closet. there really is not one issue that if we, if we take that on, that's going to make everything wonderful. There are lots of things that can impact the river system and our lives, and we need to look at them in a, a cumulative, uh, cumulative way. Uh, another thing is top-down versus bottom-up. You know, a lot of times when you think about water management, you think, uh, water quality permits, water withdrawal permits, TMDLs, total maximum daily loads, et cetera, top down government policy regulations. And that's needed for certain aspects, absolutely. But we also need to look at it from bottom up. What can people in their communities do? Things that, truthfully, government doesn't do that well uh, non point source pollution, suburban stormwater pollution, runoff from agricultural areas, etc. cetera or protecting forests, so we need to do that from the bottom up, and we need both. DRB, Delaware River Basin, needs attention and support, both funding and resources. You hear about the Hudson, you hear about the Chesapeake. The Delaware is doing okay. It doesn't have some of the other problems, but it can be on a tipping point, so we've got to get people's attention. And we need better science. One thing I learned when we were doing the PCB work at DRBC, if you didn't have a strong base of science, you could not get people to the table. So that is really important, but also the outreach efforts and clicking, Um, getting people to understand uh, what, what this system is all about. And my last one is, I would love to see a multi-attribute strategy for the future. And as I go through these issues, maybe we can come back to that and some ideas of how we might accomplish it. So those are my key issues. You can you can just, you know, put your uh, sleeping glasses on and, and uh, wait till the panel, or I've got a few issues to uh, throw into to, to el- illuminate these. So first in a context, we have to remember that water management does not uh, look at averages. You know, people say, "Oh, the average water flow at Trenton is X," or the average dissolved oxygen at Ben Franklin Bridge at X. Well, if you're in a drought or you're in a flood, you don't care about averages. If you're a fish trying to swim up the river, you don't care about averages. If it's the middle of the summer, so we need to make sure we're talking uh, the same type of th- same numbers. Um, also, people think of water management, well, that's when you build reservoirs and pipes or when it's in the river or the stream. Uh-uh. Water management starts on the land. 90% of what happens to our water is happening on our land. So we've really got to combine forces with municipalities that, ha- that especially in our area of the country, local rule, have the say on what's happening on the land. So uh, important one we need to come back to one water system. A lot of times people will get in silos, if you will, or cubicles, uh, mainly because the way the federal laws were created back in the 70s. It made sense then. So you have wastewater laws, and stormwater laws, and wetlands laws, and water drinking uh, drinking water laws, but it's all one water. And if we'd have flood water and we let it uh, big build pipe, build big pipes and throw it downstream, what happens when the drought occurs? We've wasted that water. So we need to think holistically. A lot of people, and you hear it these these days with uh, you know the, the uh, environment we're in, the public environment we're in, that, oh, you know, the, the state takes care of that. The EPA takes care of that. Uh, what am I supposed to do? Well, there's a lot an individual can do, so we need to work on that. And how many people know they live in a watershed, let alone the Delaware River Basin, and what's above them and below them. So um, context is really important. And while some things, you know, that's plan plan big and and implement locally, a lot of that is true. But some things just have to be done on a basin scale. So we need to separate those out. And unfortunately, it's just going to get more complicated. So, for context, here we are down in the Philadelphia Camden area. Um, this just happens to show the intakes for Philadelphia because we're going to t- talk about that later. But, 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 hello. Um, we need to think about where we're located. You know, the basin is 13,500 plus square miles, the river's 330 miles long. Um, and so you like 200 miles above us. So you can see where we are down in the bottom third in the tidal parts of the basin. The tide goes up to Trenton. It's non-tidal above that. So there's a lot we need to make sure we're making friends with our neighbors upstream. The other thing that's really special about the Delaware, if you look at it, it's parts of four states. New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. And if you look at the river, the river divides those states. So if you're standing on the banks of the the Delaware in New Jersey, you're either looking across to Pennsylvania or Delaware. It is a totally shared river. So it has to be managed in a shared view. Just as a comparison, our neighbor to the west, Susquehanna, is something I called a stacked watershed. So it starts in New York, crosses a state boundary, flows through Pennsylvania, crosses another state boundary, so it's really a different management scheme. States have a chunk of it to to manage. So getting back to the Delaware, incredibly valuable, water source for over 15 million people, including New York City, the largest metropolitan area, they get half their drinking water from the Delaware, we'll be talking about that, and Philadelphia area, our area here, which, unfortunately, I had to change that from five to six because we got displaced in uh, size of uh, metropolitan areas by Phoenix, I think. So we're now the sixth largest. We get all our water from the Delaware River in Philadelphia. Camden gets water from uh, well fields, and other communities along here uh, depend on water from the river and water coming to the river in the basin uh, for their drinking water. Longest undammed river east of the Mississippi, and a very used river with the amount of water used for industry and other water needs. A lot of it goes back into the river, but it's um, very used. So, because it's a shared system, Delaware River Basin Commission was created in 1961 by President Kennedy, um, and it's five commissioners, the governors of the four basin states and a general in the Corps of Engineers who represents the president. It used to be the Secretary of Interior, now it's the Corps of Engineers. The whole idea is to manage on a watershed basis without regard to political boundaries. You can imagine how well that's working now. Okay. Some of the issues I'd like to go through um, to to highlight some of the complexity and some of those key issues I mentioned. Water allocation, so the the quantity side of of water. Looking at keeping the clean water clean. There's a very high water quality in the upper basin. And how do we keep it that way? What are the attacks? Some of the estuary issues. And then, of course, uh, the overlay of climate change that will have a major impact on our system. So when you look at water allocation, You've got to look at the issues between New York and uh, drinking water needs down here. Back in the early 1900s, New York said, we're not going to draw from the Hudson in New York City, when it's salty, but not even upstream. We want to build reservoirs up in the mountains. And they built three major reservoirs, uh, 271 billion gallons, if I remember correctly, up in the top of the Delaware uh you can imagine if you were a down basin state and you look up there and somebody's taking your water what are you going to do any lawyers in the room sue them and if a state sues another state that goes to the supreme court so this is a supreme court decision in 1931 and then reopened in 54 when they built the third uh, reservoir so the supreme court said that yes, New York City can take water up to 800 million gallons just for comparison. Philadelphia takes about 300 million gallons and uh, New Jersey can take water out of the DNR canal to central New Jersey up to uh, 100 million gallons, but there's a uh, target at Montague, that's right where New York, New Jersey and Pennsylvania all come together where they have to, uh, New, New York has to release enough water that they hit a flow target there so there's an equitable amount of water coming downstream to the down basin states. Okay, all's good to the 1960s drought, multi-year drought. And it was just proven that there was not enough water to go around. If New York took everything they were allowed, there would not be enough water to come down the Delaware. And that's what the mayor of New York did. He turned off the faucet to the Delaware, took all the water to New York City. So instead of going back to the Supreme Court, they used the offices of the DRBC to bring the parties together, uh, that's the states and New York City, to figure out what they did, what should do. So they put together a, um, supposed to have reservoirs on it. Can you see those? Uh, Anyway. something called the the unofficial version is the good faith agreement because it said okay if it stops raining we're going to lower the expectations New York will take less New Jersey will take less the river will get less um, but there's some things that really matter on a base and scale and it affects us because during that drought Philadelphia's Torsdale intake is right there, and now there's a New Jersey American intake almost opposite it, it wasn't at the time. And if there's not enough fresh water coming down the river, salt from the bay can work its way up into the river. In that multi-year drought, it got to river mile 102. River miles start at the ocean, so that's zero, Ben Franklin Bridge is 100 and it goes on up the river. So it was eight miles below the intake with a 12-mile tidal excursion, too close for comfort. So one of the big things, and I should say when I talk about the salt line, you can't see the salt line. Reporters uh, asked us during one drought, can we go up in a helicopter and see the salt line? No. Um, So it's it's the drinking water concentration. So it's the level of salt you don't want to get in a drinking water supply. So the whole analysis uh, goes down where New York takes less and less, New Jersey takes less and less, until you get to an emergency, a drought emergency, where it depends on that salt line. Now there's a lot going on with the parties to the decree right now on sort of yin and yang, who's who's taking what. We can get into some of that later. But, oh, here's the one with the reservoirs. So with the um, uh, good faith agreement, It affected New York, but also there were reservoirs built so that the waters can be pulled from those reservoirs. Also, DRBC has a target at Trenton of 3,000 cubic feet per second, CFS. That was the amount uh, thought to keep the salt out of those intakes. And so if New York isn't required to, to release enough, water can be pulled from some of the reservoirs. Um, This looks a little complicated, but it's not too bad. So this is the flow of the Delaware at Trenton, back during a drought in 99. And the black line is how much water was actually flowing at Trenton. So if you look at the, the vertical column, it's what the flow is. So you can see the black lines bouncing around 2,500, 3,000 cubic feet per second. That's what we want there to keep the salt down. The red line is a model saying that if we did not have those required releases from those New York City reservoirs and the other reservoirs, the uh, flow would be bouncing around down below 1,000. So if you don't have enough fresh water coming down the river, you know, think of where that salt might be. So this whole um, operations that's in place is really, really important, and there's, it's way more complicated, and I'm not going to go into it here, but just want you to know that these things are in place. It looks like a great free-flowing river. No management needed. Uh-uh. There's a ton of management going on in the Delaware. Then what was realized is all these Supreme Court decrees, and back then, nothing about conservation releases, fisheries, how much water needs to stay in the stream. So that was a major issue during my tenure when people, fishermen, you know, motel owners, uh, restaurant owners, fishing guides, their lives depend on having good fisheries upstream. Why is it a good cold water fishery? Because New York City releases bottom water out of those reservoirs that's really cold. So it's an artificially based world-class trout fishery. People from, come from Montana to fish here, all based on New York City reservoir releases. So there's been a lot of, I'll say, micromanaging between what the Supreme Court said had to be done to be more protective of the in-stream flows. It begs a question, uh, sort of a moral basis, how much water should be in a stream? You know, if you get down to a drought, who gets what? So DRBC contracted with um, TNC, the Nature Conservancy of Pennsylvania, to do an analysis of sort of different size streams, different seasons, how much water needed to be in those. Really good study, however, there's been no policy direction to implement that. So there is no in-stream flow uh, standard right now. One of the issues to keep in mind as you you start talking to the panel, and thinking about how to do this, the more water you say it needs to stay in the stream is less water that a water supplier or an industry can pull from the stream. And so there's like a safe yield. How much water do they need to supply the to the people or, or the industry? So who who gets the water? Okay, flip side, the solution to a drought is a flood, right? And the major floods that have caused problems in the Delaware are a back-to-back hit—one that fills the reservoirs and then one that dumps the reservoirs and just you know uh, floods all the the land and the the streams—and we get that. So we were a pretty dry river, uh, but then in 2004 to 2006, we got three major floods in two years. Really changes the directions we were going. Again, don't want to do too much graphics, but This is important. So here, the flows are again on that vertical basis. Remember we were talking about like 3,000 before? Now we're talking about 150,000, 200,000. So we're up in the flood categories. The red line was chosen as anything above that is sort of a major flood. So we had one major flood in 1903. The flood of record was 1955. There's a good, good book about that. But then look at the three all the way over to the right. Those were the three that we had between 2004 and 2006. Almost 50 years since the 1955 flood. Over 50 years since the 55 flood. So this was the water uh, river of droughts. The Susquehanna usually got the floods. Now we're getting floods and need to change policy. This is my favorite picture, poster picture. Um, These are million dollar condominiums between the Delaware Canal on the Pennsylvania side and the river. Good place to build condominiums. Um, They are above the, you know, one foot above the 100 year flood, but they had, you know, um, oil tanks that broke loose from houses hitting them, they had, you know, cars hitting them. It's just we've got to make more sense of what we do on the land. Um, So with water allocation, we've got to look at the extremes, droughts and floods. Some of the issues and, and these are being addressed. It's not like these are new issues, but they're issues that maybe should be revisited as we get into climate change and some other things that are going to drive more extremes. So who gets that water when it gets dry? How much water needs to be less, left in the river? How do we lessen flood damage? You can't stop floods. Rivers naturally flood. Floodplains flood. Flood. I've had my head cut off a number of times at meetings saying floodplains flood, but they do. And um, so, how do we lessen that when we have an undammed river? And I think keeping it undammed is really important for the Delaware. So what do we do on the land sides uh, to better protect ourselves? And then the whole issue of, you know, what does upstream entities need to do to make our lives better down here? And is that fair? You know, how 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 do we justify that? So things to think about water allocation. Let's move on. So here's a picture looking at Philly over to Camden. Look at that density. I mean, how, how can you maintain water quality with that density, right? I mean, it's incredible. So there are issues down here we really need to deal with on the land and in the water. But what I wanna talk about right now is upstream and how to keep the clean water clean. Cause this is what it looks like up near the Pennsylvania, New York border. Isn't that gorgeous? And it's that green stuff, those forests that keep it gorgeous and clean. This is a, uh, a graphic that um, Jessica Sanchez, who's in the audience, put together, I believe. It was yours, right? Um, and 81% of the upper basin is in forest. When I mean, you talk about green infrastructure, that's my kind of green infrastructure. That gives the river a running start. And there are a lot of issues that are challenging that area. Uh, One of the things that's been realized is that it has a unique value. Three-quarters of the main stem river is in the national wild and scenic river system. Uh, So the federal government and those that promoted it realize that that's important and to go along with that DRBC has a program called the Special Protection Waters and that is doing a lot of monitoring showing that the water quality is better than standards and therefore should be kept at existing water quality and not drop down to standards. The riverkeeper who will be speaking on the panel was a major driver through petitions to get the, the length of this. So Any new activity above Trenton, either on the main stem or on the tributaries, say it's a new wastewater treatment plant or an expanded wastewater treatment plant, needs to prove that they will have no measurable change to the main stem Delaware. So even if they're on a tributary, they'd have to do a model showing by the time that wastewater got to the Delaware, it would have no measurable change. Pretty really important regulation. Um, So for keeping the clean water clean, we've got to look at land use changes, going from forest to impervious, forest to other other issues, environmental practices. You know, again, it's going down to the municipal level. We've got some really good municipalities down here that have strong ordinances on setbacks and riparian buffers, native plants use, etc. But that's not true for the whole basin and there can be a lot of building that's in in code in a municipality that can be really bad environmentally potential gas development i have a feeling we're going to get into that during questions what do you think um you know with drbc's action on wednesday uh, hopefully we will not have fracking in the upper basin but we'll we'll talk about that in addition to that people are moving to the upper basin a lot of people are moving into the cities which is great but they're also moving upstream and how does that affect water use, water supply, where it has to go. Forest important, Um, I know some of you have heard this, but you know how people say it's the economy, stupid? It's the forest, stupid. We've gotta protect those forests. And need to educate, uh, and both bottom-up education and action. I just wanna mention briefly, because there is this initiative that's doing some of that bottom-up, There's the Delaware River Watershed Initiative that's been going on for four years now. We and Penn Foundation, which is the primary funder, is expanding it for another three years. The whole purpose is not top-down, but to work with communities, to work with nonprofit organizations, to develop watersheds that provide sufficient clean water to produce healthy natural and human communities. So it's not just for drinking water for humans, but for the critters that are in the streams also. There's a, a group uh, involved, sort of the oh, oh, co- oh, it was empty. Phew, um, coordinating committee, but a strong science backbone, uh, working with the grass tops, 50 organizations, targeted programs, restoration and protection. So, say a restoration for farmland runoff protection of forests uh, where water quality is really good, capital and uh, non-capital strategies working with municipalities, place-based, and there's a whole analysis that came up with what we call eight uh, clusters of water sedge, eight areas that either had really high water quality, most of the ones in the upper basin, or had some impairments. And so you can see in New Jersey, there's a major one down in the Pinelands, kirkwood Cohansie. There's also the New Jersey Highlands. And then in Philadelphia area, there's the suburban Philadelphia. And we can talk about the others. But the whole idea is to be place-based, not like the Chesapeake saying, hey farmer up in the Susquehanna, you got to change the way you're doing things because somebody wants to catch crabs miles and miles downstream. This is working with the farmer whose stream runs through his property, his kids can't swim in the stream because it's polluted. How can we help him understand that he has a way to change change that? Okay, down to the estuary. Our estuary is unique. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of ways to get to it to access. But John Teal, who wrote uh, Life and Death of a Salt Marsh, said it has the highest, most contiguous ring of wetlands of any estuary. It is just a huge, huge environmental resource. But of course, it's also a working river. So we've got to tie those together. How do, how do we make that work? And you're going to hear from Jen Atkins later, who heads up the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary, that's, that's doing a lot of that work. But some of the issues we've been worried about is more from the chemical side. Um, Anybody know what that fish is? Striped bass uh, right in front of the waterworks of, the, um, of Philadelphia. So this is the very sort of head of tide for the Schuylkill. But you can't eat him because of PCBs. And there, was, there has been about a 10-year effort involving environmental organizations, the dischargers, EPA, the estuary states, DRBC, to come together to find a way that we can reduce PCBs, to eliminate fish consumption advisories, and do it in a way that sort of people have a level playing field and can get there. One, there's a, um, I think this is a common criteria now, uh, 15 picograms per liter, that's like five zeros after the decimal point, but that's what we need to get to to uh, eliminate fish consumption advisories. But we know it's going to take a while because it's in the sediment. It's coming from a bunch of different sources. So there's a time frame. There's a regulatory process. EPA is doing a stage 2 TMDL. So it's moving along, but we've got to keep pushing it. Other issues are nutrients. Believe it or not, nutrient loads in the Delaware estuary are 5 to 10 times higher than that in the Chesapeake. And I mean it's like, what? It can't be. Well, it is. And you don't see the, the uh, manifestation of the problems because the Chesapeake is like a lake. It's pretty shallow and it, it goes back in so it, it, it doesn't flow through very well. You compare that to the Del- Delaware that's shaped more like a, a small bay of Fundy, and then you have the flows coming down from the the freshwater flows that we talked about before. There's a lot of interaction and flushing so you don't get those algal blooms and things that you do in the Chesapeake. But we need to fix it because it also affects the dissolved oxygen levels in the river. And that's what any of the critters need. They need oxygen if they're gonna live in the river. And now we have breeding sturgeon, pretty incredible. Breeding sturgeon in the Delaware, which are pretty sensitive. So we need to look at those dissolved oxygen levels, which can be affected by nitrogen output from wastewater plants etc so again it's complex but it's being uh, uh, prioritized merging contaminants you know, uh, pharmaceuticals hormones etc we don't we don't have our arms around that yet And the next big guy climate change and we, we can't ignore this and it also can't be looked at just by itself it's really, an overlay on all those other issues that, that I've touched on and I haven't touched on all of them. But when we look at more intense storms, uh, have you looked at Jose lately, the path? We may be seeing him a little curl him a little closer than we expected. When Sandy was coming up at us, the first NOAA track was straight up the Delaware. Would we have been prepared for that? So we really need to think about what more intense storms can mean to us. And I have on there loss of snowpack. Snowpack is a water supplier's best friend because if you've got a good snow in, on, in the drainage of your reservoir and it, it soaks in slowly, it's a great recharge for your water supply. But as the temperatures increase, how much snowpack are we really going to have in our area? So let me spend a little more time on sea level rise because that's one I didn't touch in uh, in water allocation. It's been going up for years. This is from 1900 to, to uh, just over 2,000. So you know that's been going on globally and here. But two things are happening. One, it's rising faster, and two, our area of the Mid-Atlantic is expected to have a higher sea level rise than globally. The red line on the bottom is global. Other ones uh, along here, if you can read them, I mean there's Philadelphia, Atlantic City, Sandy Hook, Lewis, Delaware, etc. Um, the way the ocean currents are, the way the Delaware is shaped, uh, it's just a number of factors. Another one that I thought was really interesting, it goes back to uh, glaciers and geology. when the and think of a sitting on a yoga ball. So when the glaciers were pressing down on New England, we sort of popped up a little bit. And now that the glaciers are gone, New England's popping up and we're going back down. So there's a number of different factors that are creating more hazard for our area. So remember I talked about those intakes, the salt water, in, or the uh, drinking water intakes and the problem with salt. University of Pennsylvania Design did a not a peer review study but a studio study looking if we had the drought of the 60s again but a meter three foot sea level rise which is you know expected what would happen to those drinking water intakes and they showed that by 2050 by 2050 the salt line could be four miles above those intakes by 2100, maybe seven miles. Now this isn't peer reviewed, but it gives you an idea of what we need to worry about. And it's not just that, but we have really unique uh, freshwater tidal wetlands. Oysters need certain uh, changes in saltwater or freshwater. So there's a lot of things dependent on what happens to this scheme. So going back to the key points, I hope these are illustrative of some of these and will give you uh, sparks to uh, carry on in the panel. But I did want to go back down to the multi-attribute strategy for the future. You can't solve this little bits by little bits. DRBC did a planning, um, uh, planning work back in 2004. A water resource plan for the basin it hasn't been updated and I, I want to go back to something that was in my past back when I worked for Pennsylvania DEP Governor Ridge asked me to head up his 21st century environment Commission I had 40 commissioners ranging from mining to Audubon and 40 alternates and he gave us a blank sheet and said what are the issues for the next 100 years and what should our actions be? Pretty incredible from a governor, no strings. And I'm thinking that, you know, if, if the governments here are sort of loath to give operational funds to DRBC and others, could we convince them to provide support for a, 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 such a, a study as this? On the one done in Pennsylvania, there were two co-chairs. So there was a government co-chair and a non-government co-chair. And so people felt they had, you know, people to talk to and and were represented. So it's just something to think about if if we could pull this off, because I'm just, there's so much potential of little things that it can affect this uh, incredible resource. So cumulative and let's work together to protect that. So thank you very much.
0: questions, uh, so this, Carol?
3: Or you could just wait for the panel, it's OK.
1: we
0: <laughs> So if you could change just one thing, then, to make everything so much better. Oh, OK. So if, if you could change just
3: one thing, then, to the top of your list, make things, make things better, <laughs> what would that be? Uh. Uh, well I would say a better understanding of uh, the citizens of the basin and that also applies to the municipal governments of the basin so that the land is better managed and if that's better managed I think the waters will be better Is she allowed to ask questions?
1: Yeah. No. <laughs> um. Yeah, I do this. Really well. uh, I was just wondering, considering, aside from
3: the politics of the water distribution, um, you know, New York takes all that water out of the watershed. Is there impacts from that? Because that water doesn't, I assume, come back to the watershed in any way, shape, or form. Whereas you know, theoretically, for the other, other um, entities that take the water out, it you know, does, there is water that travels back to mm-hmm. the basin. So I'm just wondering, like, what impact that has, if It's a, it's a really good question because they, their reservoirs are located way up in the headwaters. Um, I believe it was 14% of the basin, so a fairly small percentage of the total flow of the basin, but it's 70 percent of the headwaters. Jessica, I don't know if you have those numbers and I can, I can check on them. Um, so that that's what caused all the furor that, you know, this water is taken out of the basin and it, it's totally consumptive because it's it's not coming back. Um, I think at this point in time we, we have to live with a Supreme Court decree that allows them to take that But I will say that New York City listens much better than they used to and is more of a player. The person who's head of water supply there actually grew up in the headwaters of the basin. So he sort of understands it better. And of course, his main job is to protect the citizens of New York City. But he was willing to, like for during floods, a lot of people blamed the operations of the New York City reservoirs on some of the floods not the 18 inches of rain that occurred up there. Um, there's, that's a whole other story. But um, he, he has been trying to keep a 10% void in the reservoirs, even though any drinking water supplier will want every total drop of water possible you know, when they're drinking in their water supply. So they, they are trying to make concessions. One thing that you mentioned about the, the rest of the water comes back into a watershed. One thing you need to think about in smaller watersheds, say the the Schuylkill watershed or even the Cooper watershed, um, is as we do more piping and have big wastewater plants and people move further upstream, people are taking water out of the system upstream, say they have a well field or whatever, but instead of that, that going back into the stream, it's going into a wastewater pipe and running, say, 10 miles down in a pipe to that regional wastewater plant. So you're you're essentially taking that water from those smaller watersheds. So you need to think about the hydro- hydrologic implications, not just the water quality implications. But good question. Yeah, well, one more question. Hi. I'm just wondering if there's any outreach to uh, real estate developers trying to explain that's that's a really good question Um, not that I have been involved with I don't know how much the states are doing I know um, real estate agents need to to divulge if you know a certain house is in a in a floodplain but um, something we should follow up on it's a good good question
0: For more information, visit njspotlight.com. This podcast is a production of State Impact Pennsylvania, WHYY Radio, and NJ Spotlight. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for listening, and take good care.